0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along. So glad you're here. Uh, We've been doing a series over the last two Sunday nights. Tonight is the third one, and um, we've we've called it Fluid. And I've been talking to you in these messages on how we navigate in a world of drastic change, a world where change itself seems to be changing. And I've suggested to you that metaphorically speaking, we're living in a world somewhat like Kevin Costner's water world. All of the fixed features of our world have sunk beneath the sea. The waters around us have grown, as Bob Dylan predicted, and all we knew as fixed and secure has been swept away by a tsunami of change. In a water world, you need very different techniques and a very different set of skills to navigate as uh, compared with a world where you've got fixed um, you know, landscape, where you've got mountains and hills and valleys that you can navigate by. excuse me, Um, uh, for those of you who were here last Sunday night, I'm still working on it, okay, it's getting better, but it's not quite right. Um, So I suggested that first of all, in terms of navigating in a water world, you need a fixed point that's in the heavens, because everything on earth is Uh, changing. Well, everything in the sea is altering and changing. So your fixed point has to be a fixed point in heaven. And we talked about how ancient sailors used Polaris, the North Star, as their fixed point for navigation. And I suggested to you in message one that our North Star is a person, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In week two, we looked at the need for an anchor. Um, A good anchor can achieve two things for a sailor. Number one, it can stop him or her going where they don't want to go. So in other words, if the storm is driving you, you can put down your anchors and just not be dragged wherever the waves and storm is taking you. But secondly, by a process called kidging, you can actually use the anchor to to go where you actually do want to go. And we talked about an ancient process where... um, an anchor was put in a small boat, rowed out, dropped, and then the larger boat was winched toward that anchor. And that process would be repeated again and again as was necessary to take a ship out of shallow water or off a shoal or a sandbank. So the anchor can be used, A, to stop you going where you don't want to go, and B, to help you go where you do want to go. And I talked about the fact that the anchor is God's word, and it's the hope that uh, and that, that word births a hope within us that stops us simply being driven on every subjective wave of our culture. It gives us a set of values to live by and it also gives prophetic promises by which we can pull ourselves into God's purposes. In this message, I wanna to talk to you about ballast and balance that a, that a vessel needs if it's gonna be safe out on the water. When when a ship is designed and built, there are very definite laws that must be adhered to if it's going to be safe and seaworthy. The length, the width, the depth measurements of the vessel must all be proportionately related so that the vessel is actually stable. Weight below the waterline in the form of what we call ballast has a direct relationship proportionally to the weight of the vessel above the waterline if it's gonna be safe. If those vessels, or rather if those proportions are wrong, then the vessel is immediately compromised. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about boating, ballast is the heavy material, usually iron or lead, that's attached to the keel um, beneath the waterline, or, or sometimes ballast can be in the form of specially sealed compartments that are filled with water all below the deck. And what those heavy weights do is they act as a counterweight that are designed to give the vessel stability. So if the vessel is pushed over by a large wave, naturally it's gonna heel with the wave. The ballast attached to the keel, though, will act as a counterweight and it will cause the boat to right itself again. Insufficient weight in the ballast tanks or attached to the keel obviously compromises the safety and security of the vessel. One of the most infamous blunders in terms of getting those proportions wrong occurred in the 17th century. In August of 1628, a ship called the Vasa was launched at a Swedish port. It had been commissioned by a very important great king called Gustavus Adolphus, and he wanted the biggest and best ship that had ever sailed on the oceans. Most merchant ships at this time were built with only one gun deck. Well, Gustavus Adolphus ordered the Vasa to be built with two gun decks, and he lined both with heavy artillery. So the great day for the launch arrived. The formalities were completed. The band played. The sausage rolls and Cheerios were eaten. And the Vasa slipped down the slipway into the harbour. Much to the alarm of all who were watching, the Vasa almost immediately keeled over onto its side and then promptly sank. And it would have been hilarious. It would have been one of those Monty Python moments, except for the fact that there were 25 sailors down beneath the uh, beneath the decks who were drowned before they could be rescued, and the reason for the spectacular failure failure was quite simple: the several tons of stone that were normally put in a vessel like that to act as ballast were completely outweighed in this instance by the heavy artillery that Adolphus had ordered to be put on not one deck but two decks. So the weight above the waterline was greater than the weight beneath the waterline, and when it keeled over, there was nothing to actually counterweight it and pull it back. The very first small wave that came along caused the, boat to, caused the boat to keel over, and without the sufficient counterbalance, it simply continued in its journey and went under the water. So ballast, incredibly important. That ballast in a vessel is equivalent to the foundations of a building. Both are unseen. Nobody comments on the foundations of a building or the ballast in a boat. Yet the integrity and alignment and safety of both the building and the vessel are utterly dependent on either the foundations or the ballast. I'd like to to suggest to you tonight that ballast is about your character. It's about who you are beneath the waterline of the visible. It's not about the persona that you project on your Facebook page. Character is very different and distinct from such concepts as personality, image, reputation, or celebrity. Character is about the essential stuff that you are made of, the inner reality in which thoughts, speech, decisions, behavior, and relations are rooted. Character is the core of who you really are when no one's looking what you are in the dark, as it were. And on a seascape where, and at a time when, people in our culture really only admire what is visible, what is above the waterline, there is always a temptation (coughs) to direct our attention to that realm. What is above the waterline is what's seen and what is admired. And the great temptation for people like you and I is to build in that region. We are a culture enamored by celebrity. We are in love with personalities, with people's outward giftings, be they beauty, be they athletic prowess, be they intellectual capacity. Because of this, the temptation to concentrate all our efforts on that which is visible. (coughs) Staying with the vessel analogy, we work to ensure that we have exciting colors, the right shaped sails, gleaming brass fittings, cabin creatures and comforts, <coughs> impressive decks and wood texture. Everything that is visible, everything that's above the waterline, gleams with excellence. Our seascape culture is really big on celebra- and celebrity, almost nonexistence when, non-existent in its concern with internal character. We are very much an image culture. We deal with surface, appearance, and style. Style in our culture has become an end in itself. It's no longer an expression of substance. Today, perception is reality, and identity has become a matter of presentation. I think the famous Vogue editor, Diana Vreeland, summed it up best when she told her staff, never mind the facts, project an image to the public. Our culture has lost its excellent heroes and we've settled for interesting celebrities. We no longer have strong characters, just striking personalities. So many of the celebrities that fill our magazines and TV slots aren't famous for being great. They're simply famous because they're famous. Inner excellence. What I'm calling weight beneath the waterline has been exchanged in our culture for external image. And I hear people saying inane things like, I don't care what he does in his private life, just so long as he does a great job in public. And, and, uh, you know, I don't care that he cheated on his wife or that they cheated on their benefit, just so long as they keep their promises in public. And you just want to say, listen... What they do in private is who they are. If they can't keep their promises to their wife, what makes you think they will keep their promises to you? For goodness sake, what they are in public will be an extension, uh, sorry, in private, will be ultimately an extension of what they are in public. The two cannot be separated it was Plato so long ago who said statecraft politics public realm is simply soul craft it's the private whatever is private ultimately will become public Jesus said it this way what happens in the dark will be shouted from the rooftops ultimately this issue of character what is not seen what is beneath the waterline is vitally important and our culture has thrown it overboard Newsweek magazine had an interesting article that actually addressed this issue in a powerful and yet perhaps novel way. It chronicled the rise of plastic surgery in our culture, and it talked about the fact that this that plastic surgery started as an attempt to humanely treat wartime injuries. It, it has, in our society, <coughs> grown into a million a multi-billion dollar industry, practiced chiefly on people with good health without medical necessity. Only decades ago, such treatment would have been regarded as so grossly self-indulgent to, v- to virtually be a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. And so Newsweek asked this question, what lies beneath this huge cultural shift in thinking about the place of plastic surgery? One possible suggestion was that over the last century and a half, life has changed dramatically from largely rural to overwhelmingly urban. Small, stable, face-to-face relationships have given way to superficial, largely anonymous acquaintances. The inevitable result is an accompanying shift from the emphasis on internal character to external appearance. In a world in which first impressions may be all there is, plastic surgery becomes the natural Resort. And then playing on the facelift phenomena, the article amusingly but perceptively concludes by asking the underlying question still lurks. Are we dragging down character as we lift up everything else? We live in a world that's totally devoted to image. But I want to tell you, image will not keep you on a seascape, image is above the waterline. What is beneath the waterline is ballast. And without sufficient character, I want to tell you, you're an accident waiting to happen. It may take a week, it may take a month, it may take a year, it may take 10 years, but one thing is certain. You cannot ignore the principle of weight distribution and stay afloat. And if there is not more weight beneath the surface than there is above the surface, the collapse of your vessel is inevitable. And ballast is something that you have to monitor in an ongoing way. Because ballast was once there, it doesn't guarantee it still is. Water tanks can be punctured. Bolted weights can work loose. In 1992, a popular American yachtsman, Michael Plant, was lost at sea. His boat, the Coyote, was found several weeks later, and they found it upside down. It had capsized. This was really surprising for boats like this are rarely capsized. But it was found that the 800-pound weight designed to be ballast had sheared off somehow, perhaps the coyote had collided with an underwater object and it had broken it off. But once it had gone, the stability of the vessel was immediately compromised. And it was only a matter of time because before a wave of sufficient size or velocity hit that boat and it was unable to right itself. People, we desperately need folk who have, who have weight beneath the waterline, who are of good character in our society, in leadership in industry in education in politics in churches i think that idea that we need good characters is probably plain enough however it begs another question what is character and how do you get it what does it look like how do i ensure that there is enough ballast in in my vessel And in answering that question, I suspect we could go in any number of different directions, all of which would have some validity and perhaps be helpful. In the time that we have, I I want to very briefly go in one and one only. One direction and, and one only. King David was a person who had ballast in his life. If you know the story of David, you know that in the back paddocks of Bethlehem alone in obscurity and in solitude, he developed a deep and profound relationship with God that he continued mostly for the rest of his life. He built ballast into his life. And I want to tell you, there were a couple of times where he desperately needed it. The incident concerning Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah tipped him horizontal. If it were not for ballast that he developed over long years of intimate fellowship with God, I don't think he would have ever recovered from that capsized. He did, however, after a season, right himself. Even then, not without significant damage. But I want to ask the question and then briefly answer it. What was it that preserved David? What was it that David had in the the hull of his boat that served as ballast and that pulled him back up into alignment. Psalm 25, verse 20 through 21 is a psalm of David and David says this, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed. Maybe we could say, let me not be capsized. For I put my trust in you. And then he says, let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait on you. And it's that phrase, integrity, that is so characteristic of David. In Psalm 78, um, the very end of that rather long, long psalm, describing David, it says, So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. David, by the way, was incredibly gifted, and it's described in that phrase, the skillfulness of hands. David was handsome, he was charismatic, he was a brilliant musician. Everything that you would think people would want, David actually had. Very, very skillful young man. But way beyond that was he was a man who functioned in integrity of heart. And it was that integrity that provided the substructure of godly character. And it's not different today. If you want to build a godly character, if you want to have ballast in your boat stability that will keep you in the midst of storms, then can I suggest that you start looking and start praying and developing a heart of integrity. We tend to imagine in our culture, if we use the word integrity at all, that it's a synonym for honesty. So when we talk about a person being a person of integrity, immediately in our thinking we think, oh yeah, they're honest, they, they tell the truth. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Integrity, of course, includes honesty, but it's much more than simple honesty. Integrity comes from a Hebrew word that means full or complete or undivided. Some of you may remember, I know that some of you like me are desperately trying to forget your days in mathematic classes, but, but for those of you who enjoyed it, you might remember that an integer is a whole number. As compared with a fraction, you know, two-thirds, three-fourths, an integer is a whole number that is not a fraction. An integer is a cognate word with the word integrity. It's, it, it developed out of this idea of something that is whole as compared with something that is fractured, broken in pieces. So a heart of integrity is a heart that is whole and not fractured by competing desires. David Vaughan in his book Pillars of Leadership says, a person with integrity does not have divided loyalties. That's duplicity. (coughs) Nor is he or she merely pretending. That is hypocrisy. People with integrity are whole people. They can be identified by their single-mindedness. I think that's what David was praying for in the psalm that actually Donald referenced when he prayed. And he said, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Lord, I don't want to have a heart that's running in nine directions all at once. Could you work in my heart and unite it so that I am a person with one single desire. I think sorry, Søren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, probably was trying to say the same thing when he said purity of heart is to will one thing. So integrity of heart is about our willingness to give God our whole hearts. Not, not perfect ones, because quite frankly, that's quite beyond us. But he doesn't ask for perfect hearts. He just, for, he just asks for hearts that are Wholly his. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose heart is perfect toward him. Again, the idea isn't perfect in the sense of sinlessness. The heart that is totally given to him, with all its flaws, with all its bruises and scars, nevertheless, it's given over to him. That kind of heart displays a willingness to come into God's presence and to allow. God to speak His commentary and to shine His light onto our heart, our attitudes, our, our 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 ways of behaving. Every part of who we are, we bring before Him without any defensiveness, without any self-justification, without any excuses. It's a, it's actually it's actually a heart that is simple. I I think. The word simple in our culture has become somewhat of a pejorative term. You know, we say, Oh, he's a bit simple. And 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 we are we're putting them down in saying that. But in this instance, all a simple heart means is an uncomplicated one. What you see is what you get. No duplicity, no affections and affectations that can be quite different. You know, Cortes, the Spanish freebooter, went through South America raping and pillaging and murdering, and his motto was for God and gold. I want to tell you, God may have been first in his motto, but gold was first in his affections. This is, this is about having our affectations and our affections being the same thing. Simple. Actually, the opposite is complex, And we can use that in a pejorative term when we say, oh, they're a rather complex person. There's a lot of stuff going on. A simple person is what you see is what you get. You know, the word tum, which is the Hebrew word translated by our word integrity, is used in 2 Samuel chapter 15 verse 11 in an insightful way. The background to this passage is Absalom has started a rebellion against his father David. Stirring underneath the scene, he has begun to gather and to steal the hearts of the men and women of Israel away from loyalty to his father and directing that loyalty toward him. And so he decides to have a coronation. And it says, he invited a whole lot of people. And in this verse, and with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called and they went in their simplicity and they knew not anything. These people were invited to an event. They did not know the deeper nature of this event. It was a coronation for the rebel Absalom. This passage says, they went not realizing completely simple as it were. They were not conscious of the evil design behind the invitation. The idea in integrity is there's no duplicity. Inside and outside are one and the same thing. No underlying motives, no hidden agenda, affectations and affections, the same thing. How do you get that kind of heart? Is it even possible? Well, David says, I come into your presence and I wait on you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me. And, in, and in, a heart of integrity is developed largely out of being in the presence of God, as I said before, defenses down, hearing his commentary on our life, on our actions, on our attitudes, on our motivations. And when he indicates, something of his displeasure, we immediately move to fix it. Jack Hayford talks about integrity as walking in the power of an ungrieved spirit, based on Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30, which is, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. All of us, I think, have done things, and we're aware that 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 wasn't good. I shouldn't have done that. There is just this little I don't know, alarm that goes off inside. There is a sense that the spirit is grieved. And and I want to tell you, to develop an integrity of heart, you have to listen to that. And you have to act on that. The temptation will be to justify yourself, to excuse yourself, to rationalize yourself, to do a snow job on that voice and keep it quiet. I know that I probably shouldn't have watched that, but hey, what the hell everybody else does? Give me a break, we say. Well, you can't function in integrity of heart when you excuse yourself like that. Integrity of heart is listening and responding. I've told this story on myself before. I may have told you, and if I have, forgive me. But probably, I don't know, a year ago, maybe, maybe 12, 14, 15 months ago, I called into a dairy one day on my way home from work just to grab some bread. And as I called into the dairy, it was one of those dairies that have a lotto shop um, as part of the dairy. And as I walked in, I noticed the big sign outside the lotto shop which said, this week, 26 million dollars. It was one of those giant lotto things, you see. And I'm, and I'm thinking, in my head I'm thinking, flip, what would I do with 26 million? I could be incredibly generous with 26 million. And so, without even thinking, and and I'll explain this in a minute. So I say, I'll have the bread, and hey, give me one of those, you know. um, I don't even know what to ask for. So I'll have one of them that gets that, you know. So the guy laughed, and he gave it to me. As I'm going out, I, I said to the Lord, are we okay with this? And he spoke to me. I mean, instantly spoke to me. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, God, I'm in trouble because I buy a lot of tickets too. He did not say to me, gambling is wrong, go straight to hell, do not collect $200, go straight to hell. You know, He didn't say that to me. And I'm not saying that, that you shouldn't buy a lot of tickets, it's not my business. All I said was, Lord, are we okay with this? And he spoke to me. And, and I'm, I mean, this happened within three steps. And he just simply said, Don, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And what he was saying to me as I understood it was the very fact that you even have to ask me this says something about what you feel deep inside. Because if you can move in faith, there isn't an issue, but you are not moving in faith. And I took the next step and I said, but Lord, I would have been incredibly generous with your purposes And before I took the next step, he answered me. I mean, so clear. This is a conversation that was so clear. He just said, if you want to be generous, give to the poor. Because it says in, and he quoted me a scripture, and and he quoted it to me out of the living Bible, would you believe? So some of you say, well, I don't think even God reads the living Bible. but he knows it. Because he just said to me, he who lends to the poor lends to the Lord. And the Lord pays great, pay, pay, pays great interest on his loan. It's a proverb from the Living Bible. And he said, if you want to be generous, be generous with your money. Okay? Don't wait to get somebody else's money to be generous. I, 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 you know, he, he was saying to me, I approve of generosity. And I like the fact that you would have been generous. But why don't you start with what you have rather than plan to be generous with what you don't have? All, all within three steps. Now, you know, I, I could have, I could explain that voice away. Just say, you know, my conscience is just sometimes shot. It's, it's just sometimes way too sensitive, and and it and it registers things that nobody else cares about. Come on, who cares? So one, integrity doesn't do that. Integrity stops and says, oh, okay. I need to make an adjustment there. I need to change that. And, and Lord, by your grace, I will. I'll do that. I'll, 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 I won't move without faith. You say, well, Don, I don't hear God's voice like that. Um, actually, you probably do. You just recognize it as your conscience. And you don't take any notice of it. And when it says, uh-uh, you go, uh-uh. And I want to tell you, you you do eh eh-eh too many times and conscience will just get quieter and quieter and quieter. It becomes like an opaque film over a window. And the more you go eh eh-eh, it just films out until ultimately you don't hear. And that's why Paul in Timothy writes about those whose consciences are seared as with a hot iron and no longer respond. On the contrary, as you learn to respond to that and function in integrity of heart, as you let the light shine into all those spaces, we were singing about it, and he starts to say, I want to make an adjustment there. I want to make an adjustment in the way that you speak, because you use your words as a sword. Or I want to make an adjustment into the way that you function in your moods because you use your moods to control people. And I'm done with that. And I want to change that. Now you can go, oh, that's just who I am. Or you can say, God, I don't even know how to start that, but I want to. And you let the light shine. And the light starts to get brighter and brighter the more and more and more you respond. And the voice gets clearer the more and more and more you respond. I had one other illustration. I was doing something one day in the kitchen. It wasn't a big deal, and if I told you, you'd laugh. But I just had the sense that um, Karen wasn't there. She was in another room. And, and I just thought, you know, sometimes, sometimes, when <coughs> Excuse me. sometimes when I do this thing, Karen says, really? You're gonna do that again, and it's not like it's wrong. It's just that, you know, if I explained it, <laughs> you'd understand. But I just didn't want to go through the yeah. You're gonna do that again, and so I did it quietly, and she didn't even know. She won't even know. It doesn't matter. And and then the Lord started to just interact with me, and He said, um, "I want you to tell Karen what you just did." And I thought, a she's Irish. B, she's redheaded. You tell her. I just don't need the grief, you know. I, I don't want the grief. And he, and he just whispered to me and said, uh, and I said, it's not that important for goodness sake. And he said, no, it's not. What's important though, is that you would keep a secret from her. And if you would keep a secret for something that doesn't matter, what would you do for something that does? And that stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, okay. So Karen came in and said, hey, hon, I need to say something to you. She looked at me, because I'm, you know, that doesn't sort of happen every day of the week. She said, should I be worried? I said, I don't think so, but you tell me. And I told her. She just laughed, said, okay, fair enough. And we left it at that. But I could have easily just said, oh, fiddle sticks. It's not that important, for goodness sake you know, because it, yeah, anyway, the Lord said it's important to me, and I don't want you keeping secrets from her. because if you do it in small things that really don't matter, you'll set up a pattern for when it really does, and I'm trying to set you free from that, so I said, okay, fine, make the adjustments. Integrity of heart is about allowing ballast to put deep below the waterline where nobody sees and quite frankly in this culture nobody cares but God sees and God does care and we are afloat on a seascape and there are waves that come of sufficient volume and velocity to completely tip you horizontal and if you don't have ballast in your boat to pull you back you will be lost I think I'm almost done. Okay, let me finish with this last sentence and the musicians can come. Integrity, (coughs) just as well I'm nearly done. (laughs) Because I'm really nearly done. (laughs) Integrity requires us to lay down what we think (coughs) or assume and to listen to what the Lord's deliberations are. And if we're willing to learn how to function in integrity of heart, then it's my conviction that the substructure of a deep and godly life will be laid and ballast will be placed beneath the waterline of our lives. And I want to encourage you. Don't venture out into the seascape without ballast in your boat because you're an accident waiting, for, waiting to happen. But with ballast, with an intimate relationship with God, walking in integrity of heart, He will will protect you. David said, preserve me, God, from capsizing because I walk in integrity of heart and uprightness. And God will do the same for you as he did for David. Okay, let's stand. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.